Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are bringing you the best minds in functional medicine, and I assure you today is no exception. New Frontiers is able to offer these deeper drill-down conversations with content geared toward the professional audience because we are proudly sponsored by two companies that I use in my practice every day, Metagenics and Biotics Research Corporation. A little bit about Metagenics. Their mission is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit them at metagenics.com. New Frontiers is also proud to be sponsored by Biotics Research Corporation. The foundation of Biotics Research Corporation is innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts and product development, utilizing advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques to develop and produce gluten-free nutritional products of superior quality and effectiveness. The advantages of Biotics Research Vegetable Culture Base include biologically active, whole food, consistent disintegration for proper assimilation, suitability for strict vegetarians, and improved product stability. Biotics research emulsified nutrients represent a more cost-effective means of delivering nutrients than mycelized, dry, or oily preparations and are safely and more completely absorbed. Biotics research provides the best of science and nature. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm delighted to be with Dr. Michael Ruscio today. We're going to be talking about all things gut and thyroid, or specifically SIBO and the gut-thyroid connection. I know that you're going to love it. He's got just a lot of really good stuff to teach us. I actually had the honor of being on his podcast recently, and I've got to know him in the process, and um, he's, a, he's a kindred spirit for sure. A little bit about Dr. Ruscio. He's a functional medicine practitioner, researcher, and author. Uh, his specialties include autoimmune, thyroid, and digestive disorders. He consults with clients locally in the Bay Area and remotely across the country. His clinical research is focused on digestive disorders. And as a sidebar, he just completed a pretty cool SIBO study looking at uh, biofilm, a biofilm intervention. And we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Uh, Dr. Ruzio has been featured a featured speaker at loads of conferences, including the SIBO Symposium, Paleo FX, and the Ancestral Health Symposium. He's also been an international uh, speaker as well. And he's done a whole lot of health summits. Um, he's collaborated with lots of authorities in our industry, including Rob Wolf and Melissa Hartwig. Um, he's been on loads of podcasts, also Rob, including Rob Wolf, Ben Greenfield, Jimmy Moore. Um, and he's provided training for Designs for Health, as well as the SIBO Symposium attendees. Uh, Dr. Ruscio also conducts a highly rated podcast himself. As I said, I was just on it. It was a lot of fun. And you can visit his website, podcast, and access him and his clinic over at drruscio.com. That's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And of course, we'll have all of all of that information in the show notes. Welcome to New Frontiers, Michael. It's great to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, let's jump right in. This is a pretty hot topic. Um, and there's just lots of, I know there's lots of clinical pearls. You'll impart, you're really a clinical pearl centric individual. And the more, you know, just the more user friendly stuff we can give away to clinicians, the better. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about the gut thyroid connection. Just, you know, what, can you walk us through that? 
Sure, sure. I mean, there, there's, <laughs> I guess, a lot when you when you unpack it. There, there's a lot there, but there, there's a few broad takeaways that are really important, which is your gut health does affect your immune status. And optimizing one's gut health can improve different immune, including autoimmune conditions. And this is probably why we see a number of people who go on a, a gluten-free or, or at least a gluten-reduced diet who have Hashimoto's, for example, feel better. And yeah. we have one, one study to date that's really documented in, in non-celiac subjects that a carbohydrate-reduced restricted diet can actually cause a 40 to 44% improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. So it's not just an airy-fairy natural medicine concept. We're actually seeing some contemporary science really start to back this up. And there, there's one study showing that the treatment of H. pylori can cause a significant improvement in Hashimoto's. Um, okay. So there, there's, there's a gut immune connection. There's also something I think that's overlooked quite often, which is when you improve someone's gut health, they need less thyroid hormone medication. And it's probably not because of an immediate impact on the thyroid autoimmunity, although it's often attributed to that. It's probably because the person is absorbing their medication better. And so now they need less of a dose. Uh, and then there's also this connection between thyroid autoimmunity or hypothyroidism causing gut problems. And this is probably why one recent study that surveyed over 1,800 people found the two strongest predictors for if someone would have SIBO was either being hypothyroid or being on thyroid medication. So there's this, there's wow. this inner, yeah, there, there's this complex web between the gut and the thyroid. And, and I really don't think you can have optimum thyroid health without optimum gut health or optimum gut health without optimum thyroid health. And so there, there are definitely things that have a lot of interplay between one another. And if, if you can sort this out, you can do your patients a great service. Yeah, right, right. So, um, SIBO, so, so if I'm, if I'm, well, first of all, let me just say that if you can shoot me any of these citations for the show notes, that'd be fabulous. And I'll just give you a list to, to jog your memory, but you've just mentioned four <laughs> in pretty <laughs> rapid succession. And I have a feeling people will want to see them, but so there's this interrelationship between SIBO and hypothyroidism. So thyroid meds can actually induce SIBO and likewise SIBO might induce, can induce hypothyroidism. Am I hearing you correctly? Well, we don't know if it's the thyroid meds themselves. Mm -hmm. My thinking is it's because in this one study, they showed that um, people had risk if they were undiagnosed hypothyroid, meaning they, they were hypothyroid, but they were not yet being treated. Okay. But, but then they were at even more risk if they were on thyroid hormone medication. Um, and so sometimes people may attribute, well, if they're hypothyroid, they have slow motility and that's why they have SIBO, but that doesn't account for why the people who are actually on thyroid medication. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So it, it may be something unique to thyroid disease itself. And, and perhaps it's something to do with the bacterial overgrowth, utilizing selenium, that causing a, a pseudo selenium deficiency and that opening the door for thyroid autoimmunity. That, that's one mechanism I've speculated, but hmm. certainly those who are hypothyroid or even more so those who are on medication for hypothyroid have a higher incidence of SIBO. I do not think that means people should stop taking their medication. That's, that's not the answer. Right. It, it, it's probably a non-thyroid hormone dependent mechanism that drives this. Yeah, right. Interesting. So if you're doing full functional medicine, you're casting a wide net and you're thinking about selenium and iodine and some of the you know, amino acids involved, um, you might address it. Is that what you're suggesting? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I guess the, the way to wade into this would, 
and maybe I should take a big step back because there's just one preface that I think is important to mention. And I don't want to get overly, I guess, political here, but I think it's, it's good for, for us in the field just to maybe be aware of some areas that really need improvement. And I, I do think that both practitioners and patients alike have been sold a little bit of a bill of goods where the more lab testing you do, the better results you, were, you will get. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow if you could just get better lab work, you could get better results. And I think that's a very virtuous and well-intentioned assumption, but I really think that that's severely flawed and that may actually inhibit a lot of patients and a lot of providers from getting healthy because they're chasing down lab markers that aren't, aren't super relevant. And, and when we start looking into digestive health and into thyroid health, if we can focus on the markers that are the most salient, then we can really use those as, as a North star to guide our treatment rather than getting pulled into kind of frivolous uh, exceptions. And I'm happy to elaborate on that, but I'll, yeah. I'll pause there for a second. If you yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Well, we talked about some common nutrients used and I can't imagine you would argue with making sure they're either replete in the diet or you're giving them extra if you suspect, even if you, whether you test or not. Um, any comments on that? Do you want to say? Anything? Yeah, sure. For, so for, for thyroid autoimmunity, for example, I, I don't typically run testing for the nutrients. No, no. But I, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. But, but, I, but I agree with you. Something like selenium. So there, there's been studies documenting selenium, vitamin D, CoQ10, and magnesium can all benefit thyroid autoimmunity. Um, what's interesting is, where, and where we have the, the best data is probably for selenium, if you read some of the systematic reviews with meta-analyses, some of the highest level scientific evidence, you will see them concluding that selenium does not have a appreciable impact on thyroid autoimmunity. It's probably because these, these uh, reviews are lumping together studies of three, six, nine, and 12 months or longer duration And if you look at the research carefully, you see that selenium has most of its benefit between three to six months, which probably means that people don't need to be taking selenium every day in perpetuity, but rather they may have a deficiency or maybe even a a pseudo deficiency, a real subclinical deficiency that just benefits from a a small amount of selenium. And similar results have been shown with vitamin D. In non-vitamin D insufficient populations, vitamin D supplementation has been able to reduce thyroid autoimmunity. So I, I think testing to, to make sure you're not overdosing, perhaps for vitamin D, if you're going to use it in the long term, makes sense. But really, a lot of this can be well remedied with just a simple cocktail of selenium, vitamin D, magnesium, and CoQ10. Okay. And then and you would actually do that short term, at least for some of them. I would. I would probably have someone on that regimen, a regimen of that for, for about six months. The nice thing about vitamin D, for example, is that you don't have to use whoppingly high doses to have the effect that's been seen in some of these studies. Mm-hmm. So it, you're, you don't, if you're not using these aggressive doses, you don't have to be as concerned with very, very tight serial retesting to prevent overdosing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also when you look at and God, you know, there's, there's so many directions we can go, but when you look at thyroid autoimmunity, I, I think we can start making the case that antibodies between 100 and 300 for TPO are really considered a clinical win and that we don't have to get down to below 35 or 30. All right. And, and Listen, what, let me back you up because oh, sure. I was going to go there. I was going to go there. No, I actually, we need, I just need to color in some of what you've thrown out there because people are going to want these details. All right. What's about, how are you, what, what are you dosing vitamin D at? Selenium, CoQ10. 
are you using iodine? How are you dosing that? So let's just get those fundamentals out of the sure. way, and then sure. we'll talk more about the labs. So for selenium, the dosing is, is usually about 200 micrograms per day. Yep. That's been used in most of the studies. And with vitamin D, some of the studies use a once-a-week bolus of, mm -hmm. of something maybe around 10,000, 20,000 I use. But if you break them down, oftentimes a vitamin D dose averages, if you wanted to give a daily dose, around 2,000 I use. Mm -hmm. So nothing there, incredibly exotic. Yep. And off the top of my head, I, I don't recall what the dose of CoQ10 is. I'm assuming it's probably somewhere between 60 and 150 milligrams just kind of standard dosing. Yeah, yeah. Just, and, and it's and not same, ubiquinol. It's def, I'm sure there wasn't any ubiquinol used in these studies. It was just no, uh, right. Just the, the cheaper form. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, no, no dosing that would be considered overly high or exotic, which is nice from a cost effective standpoint, because it doesn't mean you have to be having people take, especially with CoQ10, it can get quite expensive if you're using very high doses. Yeah, that's right. Um, and selenium, I'm assuming selenomethionine is what you're using. Most that's what I use. Not all the studies have used that, but that's what I use. Yes. Okay. All right. And are you going with iodine? Are you using, are you testing and then treating with iodine? What, what is your approach there? I usually don't use iodine for, for most cases. I don't really use iodine. Uh, maybe if someone is subclinical hypothyroid and they don't have thyroid autoimmunity, then I would use or, or do a trial with iodine. But if you look at most, and this is observational data, but we have an overwhelming number of observational studies showing that when we add iodine to the food supply, either in the milk or the bread or, or, or what have you, or the salt, that the incidence of thyroid autoimmunity goes up. And there are a few clinical trials that have put patients on iodine, seen an, an induction of thyroid autoimmunity or hypothyroidism, and then taken them off the iodine and seen that reverse. Um, and I speculate that perhaps one of the reasons why a, a diet like a autoimmune paleo diet works well is because that is in effect a lower iodine diet because you cut out many of the iodine rich or iodine fortified foods. So I'm open to iodine, but when we look at how it can, how it's really been shown to provocate thyroid autoimmunity and thyroid autoimmunity is the main driver of hypothyroidism in westernized countries, I really reserve that as, as a secondary or tertiary intervention just, just due to some of the stats. Well, yeah, but conversely, it's also dropped the incidence of goiter to nil. I mean, I would right. say that it's a U-curve distribution. Sure, and, sure. Um, and, it, and even, you know, I, I personally in my practice, I do use a smidge of iron, iodine, excuse me, when I think it's indicated, even in my even in my um, autoimmune patients, but you're right. I do pay. I pay attention, and I have on occasion seen it go up, even very modest dosing. So, yeah, I you know I I, I would absolutely concur that if you're going to walk in that direction with iodine, that you need to be responsible with how you dose it and 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 track it more carefully with labs. I it's interesting though. We you know it's interesting what you say that. Well, and just like you said, if you're using a smidge, I'm, I'm assuming maybe that's um, like 150 um, micrograms. Okay, yeah. So, so right. So that that's actually very reasonable. I mean, even even I believe the the upper dietary intake limit is is 11 or 1200 micrograms, and some of the research has shown that 450 micrograms per day may be the ideal dietary intake to shoot for. So, if someone's got a fairly iodine deficient diet and you're giving them a couple hundred micrograms. I think that's that's totally doable. It's when 
you get into the camp of really aggressive iodine dosing where you're at one, two, three oh. milligrams that I think you, you have the highest incidence for potentially having a problem. Yeah, so yeah. That's a good, you make a really good point. Yes, that's right. I, that's right. There, and, and, I, and it doesn't seem, and there was a very strong camp I don't, where they were going into milligram amounts. I actually think that, again, with careful observation and things like fibrocystic breasts, there might be a period of time where we use Completely that. Completely agree. But, yep. And but, that's where I think the best research is, is with fibrocystic breasts and, and higher doses of iodine. Exactly. Um, but again, it's short term and you're paying attention. And if the person has thyroid disease, you're, you're paying attention. But you're right. You're right. Folks going into, you know, five, 10 and higher milligram amounts of iodine, I, I agree that that's worth um, challenging. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about labs. Uh, you threw out, you know, you threw out a real teaser <laughs> with regard to the antibodies and what your expectation is of seeing them drop. We definitely have patients coming to practice after a lot of these summits, um, and certain speakers, I'm sure not all speakers, but wanting to wanting to see antibodies zero out. And we absolutely do see them zero out in some of our patients, but not all. So just talk about the you know, what you're thinking about with regard to antibodies, how often you're testing them and what your expectation is for people with autoimmune thyroid. Sure, I'd, I'd love to. And, and if people wanted to get a really deeper dive on this with, with many references, uh, I do have an article coming out in October. It'll, it'll publish on our website on October 1st and it'll be in our clinician's newsletter, which is the, the Future of Functional Medicine Review clinical newsletter. And, and so if people wanted to get a fuller expansion on this with all the supporting references, that will be available there. But essentially, when you look at many of the, the studies, while we don't have the, the best data in the world where we can completely conclusively answer this question, you do see a trend start to emerge where essentially when people have antibodies in the 900, 1100, 1200, 1300 type range, that does seem to correlate with a higher risk of progression of hypothyroidism. And however, when you see patients that have a, a lower level of antibodies in, in the low hundreds, that's been associated with a minimal risk. And there was one study that did track a longer term follow-up and, and did definitively show this. And there's some other, uh, other, excuse me, uh, you know, semi-complete data sets that have been published that suggest this. Um, now, People may say, well, I've read a study or two that concluded that if you have thyroid antibodies above 100, then that correlates with poor, um, poor psychological well-being, which is true. But when you actually read these studies, you see that the researchers were just defining Hashimoto's as TPO antibodies of 100 or above. Mm. When you actually look at the, the average level of antibodies in this group, they, they averaged out at 1,122. So the research, researchers concluded those with TPO antibodies above 100, what they were meaning to say is Hashimoto's had a poor psychological well-beings. However, the average level in this study group was 1,122. So the reason why this is really relevant is just because you want to prevent a patient from thinking that they have to get down to 30 or 35, especially if you've gone through all of the fundamental interventions that we can go through. And if there are presenting fairly healthy, yeah. then it's, it's a, I think from a psychological standpoint, it's very freeing for people not to think that there's something wrong with them. So it, yes. I think it's just good to make that, that clarification for people. So perfect. The, yeah. The, the TPO antibodies, you can get them and I'm sure clinicians probably see this. If someone comes in and they're not eating a good diet, they're, they're not taking any vitamin D or they're, they're vitamin D deficient and they're inflamed and they maybe have 
some insomnia and some depression and some bloating and you change their diet, you go through some of your fundamental interventions uh, and, and their antibodies may go from 1100 and then months later when their symptoms are all pretty much gone and they're feeling a lot better, their antibodies are now at 284. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's a clinical win. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really great, Michael. That's a very good, good point. Um, and then sometimes you do, you see them level out and then sometimes you might see them trend up during a stressful time and it's just an, you know, or if they've fallen off plan and you're doing a recheck and it's just a, it's a sort of a barometer for them to, you know, dial back a little bit, you know, engage in some self-care. Sure. And, you know, we use the, the, the concept of a graded risk categorization in many things. For example, blood sugar. We don't look at a blood sugar of 103 the same as we do a blood sugar of 183, right? So we probably shouldn't be doing the same with thyroid antibodies where 283 shouldn't be looked at as the same as, you know, 1,183, Yep. Um, so it, it's, I think it makes, it, it's commonsensical, but sometimes we get so wrapped into the fear of autoimmune that we don't take a moment to pause and just kind of think through it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, especially in this age of loads of emphasis on predictive autoantibody testing. And I think there's a strong and extremely important place for that, but it can make us hyper aware of what our antibody status is and you know right. and a periodic trend up in you know an ANA or whatever can just lead to great anxiety right um, so it's it is it's a it's just a careful dance between um, you know good self-care and good life habits and you know just releasing the obsession of of optimal wellness, I think, yeah, you know, yeah, just sort well of said. trusting. Um, all right. Well, what about anything to say about thyroglobulin antibodies? In my experience clinically is those tend to be a little bit harder to drop. Um, but I just, I want to hear what you have to say about them. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. The thyroglobulin tends to be a little bit less responsive and we don't seem to have as much data and, and part of it may be because that the thyroglobulin antibodies aren't tested as often as the TPO antibodies, so we just have less research in this regard. Um, but some studies have shown that if the uh, TG antibodies are below 10 times the reference range, then that can be considered a clinical win. So mm, interesting. Many, yeah, many labs may use 0.9, for example. So um, that may be something for, for people to shoot for. And I would just try to apply the same logic where you look at their, their antibodies, see where they come in initially. And if they come in only mildly elevated, then there may not be a, a lot of thyroid autoimmunity. And I guess that this brings a whole other big point into question, which is if someone has thyroid autoimmunity and has symptoms, it doesn't always mean the thyroid autoimmunity is the cause of the symptoms. And that's, that's what's right. I think, important to keep in mind. Yeah, that's right. And um, because most, you know, that well, we have both, you know, consumers and a lot of clinicians who listen to this. If you're really practicing, you know, systems or functional medicine, you'll be you'll be capturing the full scope of potential causes. And you're totally correct. I, I I've never seen a case of um, what appears like you know a classic hypothyroid. Uh, patient have only thyroid disease in it as an issue. And so we'll circle back to the gut again, which was our original um, touch point with the thyroid. And we're going to talk about adrenals. Um, so we're casting a wider net. And actually, anything else you want to throw in there that you see in your, you know, 
gut thyroid patients, if you see mitochondrial involvement, whatever you feel like talking about, you can. But before we do, I've got a couple more questions for you. <laughs> One, I'm super curious to hear what you have to say about this epidemic of nodules, but benign nodules we're seeing in our thyroid patients and what you might what what you might be doing about it, if anything, and if you're tracking them and you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, I, I can't say I, I've done as deep of a dive into nodules as I have gut health, thyroid health, and kind of the inter, interplay between gut health and thyroid autoimmunity. But there, there are some theories in terms of what causes nodules. I'm sure people have probably heard part of it could be due to accrued DNA damage from oxidation or, or toxins or, or stress or what have you. Part of it may be from damage accrued by the autoimmune process, which is why, and there, there's been disagreement in the data, but there's finally been, I, I believe it was one, it was a systematic review with, with meta-analysis that did conclude that those, that those with thyroid autoimmunity are at a higher risk for thyroid cancers. And so, um, of course, one of the things that can predispose to, toward thyroid cancer is, is nodules that can go from benign to malignant. Mm -hmm. So thyroid autoimmunity may be one factor that underlies the, uh, the, the, the cause of, of Nodules. Um, and, and some have said that a, a TSH suppressive dose of thyroid hormone may help with either nodules or with goiter. Um, and I think there's, you can make a case for iodine also in, in the mm. potentially the prevention, but the data there doesn't seem to be consistent. So there's some studies showing benefits, some studies not showing benefit. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a lot more there to learn. I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts if you have anything there that you think is, is noteworthy. Well, the whole oxidative damage piece is, uh, is absolutely reasonable for any of you know, for, 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 for hypothyroidism, you know, for toxin exposures, um, for the, progression towards cancer if it's not adequately treated. I mean, at the molecular level, we're, you know, it's just basically different flavors of oxidative damage leading to DNA damage and so forth. I think it argues for getting in early. Um, because of that U-curve with iodine, I'm, 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 I, I haven't with my nodule patients. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'll absolutely use it with the caveats that I just talked about, I'm very conservative in, in my um, autoimmune patients um, and maybe less conservative in nodule patients who don't have any clear autoimmune hypothyroidism, but I'm still going to be mindful of it. I think, you know, we're, I, I, we, we're, we're addressing it more intentionally in practice to see um, how we can, you know, what's working for us to turn them around. So we have seen su successful reversion. We've had, we've seen, you know, questionably malignant become, you know, unequivocally benign. So we've seen some good outcome there. And I was just positing this to my, oh, the reason I'm pinging you with it right now is because I was positing it to my colleague here at the clinic, Dr. Ken Litwin, you know, that you know th that we really need to be shining some light around what we're doing it i had i just had gotten an ultrasound back the other day where you know a nodule was no longer visible in a follow-up ultrasound which was really pretty cool and of course the patient was really really excited about that it felt very empowering to her we you know she's on a good full functional protocol there's nothing the nothing in her in her approach is 
you know, you know, super special or different. It's just a full functional intake and she's committed to living, you know, a clean lifestyle. The only piece that was unique in her case beyond anybody else was that she wanted to do topical glutathione. And so we did do topical glutathione with her. Um, I don't, and I don't know if that's it at all. I'm not, you know, the fact that I'm pointing that out is, is actually the only reason I'm pointing that out to you is because she came back to me and she said, it must've been the topical glutathione. And I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, I'm not sure because we really used a full functional approach. So I think, you know, it's nice to see that we're seeing some good turnaround. We're not turning around all the nodules, but I did just recently bring it up for us to, you know, start paying attention to it as a clinic and, you know, I'll blog about it or I'll, I'll keep you posted on it. We we went through a a fairly comprehensive review of the literature. I just took a moment and to, to pull this up because this was about, gosh, about two years ago now. We we went through a pretty comprehensive review of the literature on goiter and nodules. And um, if you go to our homepage search box and just type in nodule, you, you should find it. it. It's a podcast episode. There's a number of links st- cited there. Uh, and there's one study from the Journal of Endocrin- uh, Endocrinology and Metabolism which showed that the uh, at the, the addition of thyroid hormone plus iodine had the greatest impact on decreasing nodule volume compared to thyroid hormone being secondarily less effective to that, iodine alone being tertiary, you know, third most effective to that, and placebo being least effective. So the well, most effective. They, it was a combination of thyroid and iodine. That's cool. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And this actually, this most recent lab work is a Hashimoto patient who I was, I was giving her just very modest iodine um, because her labs indicated a need for it. I, t- I do like to test for that one. And so that was a piece of her protocol as, because I, there was evidence for, for need there. But do, in that study, I'm sure you don't remember because it was two years ago, but what the dose was of iodine they were using? I don't, but it's, um, it was a good sample size uh, uh, 10,024 subjects. Um, That's great. I'll click through right now and see if I can find it. But um, um, I'm assuming it was a, a somewhat reasonable dose that they used. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll just pin you on it if you can give me the citation. Or folks, as um, Dr. Rusio pointed out, you can go over to his site and just search nodule and pull it up. Um, all right. Let's see. Now let's talk about the labs. What are you testing for? What's your thyroid workup? Laboratory only. We'll talk about physical exam after that. Sure, sure. So I recently actually changed the methodology that I've been using in the clinic for our T4. And this is actually, I think, important for clinicians to be aware of. And I I did write about this in our clinician newsletter for the month of September. And um, I'm going to, I'm just pulling it up here right now because I want to give people the specifics. But essentially, I always do a TSH and a free T4 and TPO antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies. I've been doing much less of T3, reverse T3 uptake, because to be honest with you, I don't think it has a a ton of clinical relevance. I'm open to it should the right evidence be presented. Um, And just for people, um, I I caught this in a recent review, there's a more accurate form of free T4, which is by liquid comotoxin, Liquid, uh, liquid chromatography. Yeah, chromatography. Yeah. Thank you. Geez, sometimes these these get me tandem, tandem mass spectro- spectrometry. So it, it's LCMS slash MS. And um, essentially, when I looked into this, there, there's been some internal discussion in the endocrinology community about some of the T4 assays 
uh, you know, f specifically free T4 as being inaccurate and not being validated back to the gold standard. And when I looked at LabCorp, it's actually one of the T4s that LabCorp offers. So if you're using LabCorp or if you're using a, a put-through lab that maybe is direct to consumer but ultimately uses LabCorp, it's important to be cognizant of that and, and not to use the, the inaccurate form. That's great. Um, all right, that's a super that's a super duper pearl. And LC tandem mass spec is, yeah, it's the, the it's the better analytical tool for. Yeah, it's a the, lot of the, the analog immunoassay is the other one that's often used, and then that, that's been shown to be fairly inaccurate. And why this is important is if you're especially for using these tight ranges, which I, I don't really agree with the the tight functional medicine uh, free T4 ranges. If you're using a form of free T4 that's not highly accurate, then you have a very high probability that you're, you're you have no clue where in the range that T4 actually is. That's pretty if interesting. That, if that makes well, sense. they yeah. are using immunoassay at Quest. I just I just oh, but you know what? They have I'm looking it up right now. They do have LC Tandem spec for free yeah, they they do. So both both LabCorp and Quest offer the inaccurate and the accurate form. Just so it's just important to, to make it. sure that you're you're using as part of your routine assessment the accurate form and not using the uh, analog immunoassay. Yeah. All right. So. It's really funny that you said you're not doing free T3 because that was the integrative slash functional medicine community breakthrough assay. We all thought we were doing so much more than the conventional world and helping our thyroid patients so much more. And you're basically saying, nah, not, not necessary, <laughs> which I think is really funny. That's quite iconoclastic of you. Why? Well, I always try to ask myself, is, is this test allowing me to do a treatment I could not otherwise do? Or is it giving me some information that I would not otherwise have? And really, to, to put it simply, people's thyroid hormone levels are not paint by numbers, right? It, it's not, if it was just as easy as trying to force someone's thyroid levels into the range that you thought was adequate and they would magically start feeling a lot better, thyroid care would be a lot easier than it is. But unfortunately, what happens for a lot of patients is even when their thyroid hormone levels are in the, the tight normal range that we want, they're still exhibiting symptoms. And I think yeah. it comes back to the fact that oftentimes the cause of the symptoms is not the thyroid. But thyroid, if we're being honest, is so heavily marketed that practitioner and patient alike are blaming it for more yes. um, symptoms than it's actually causing. Right. And so I like to start with a very practical approach, but I have to say it, it works fantastically well, which is on day one, we typically screen for both digestive ailments like SIBO, H. pylori, candida, what have you. And we screen for thyroid autoimmunity and frank hypothyroidism. Now, if someone has frank hypothyroidism, which would mean conventionally elevated TSH, conventional range elevated TSH and low T4, then they, they're going to need to be on thyroid hormone, at least in the short term. And when using the thyroid hormone dose, we typically will start someone with just a T4. And if they don't feel better on that, then we'll consider a switch to a T4, T3 and allow for one or two dose adjustments. But after that, if that's not fixing the problem, then the problem is most likely not the thyroid. And it's most likely, because what you'll see is people will be pretty much in the normal range for their thyroid hormones, but many of their symptoms will be non-responsive, which means that their symptoms are probably be being driven by something else. And this is often where we'll see someone who's a little bit constipated and also has some bloating and their hypothyroid. When we fix their, let's say they have SIBO and H. pylori, when we treat those, 
they finally see all their symptoms improve. And then in some cases, they actually need even less thyroid medication. So I, I think missing the gut is one of the big pieces that thwarts a lot of people from getting the results with the thyroid that they'd like to. And I was just looking through, I got an email from, from it, it was for some thyroid, you know, fix your thyroid on your own, kind of do yourself protocol. And the gut, I think, was the eighth step out of nine steps. Mm. And, you know, I'm certainly open. Maybe someone has a, a different way that they're approaching this. But I can say in my practice, if I wasn't addressing the gut very early on in the process, we would probably be chasing down things like lime, metals, mold, what have you, all the while because we've missed a fundamental problem of an issue in the gut. So I don't think it necessarily needs to be that complicated. Figure out if someone is frankly hypothyroid, if they are, get them on a medication. One study showed that about 45% of patients prefer T4 with T3, 18% of patients prefer T4 alone. So certainly I'm open to getting someone on a T4, T3 combination if they don't respond. But if after that, if they're still not responding, it's probably a problem in the gut. And, and this is, you know, not to be too long-winded here, but this is also partially further evidenced by the fact that some studies with non-responsive thyroid patients who also have things like ulcers or gastritis have found that the administration of a liquid thyroid hormone that's more easily absorbed, mm -hmm. known as tyrosine, has been able to cause a better outcome in symptoms and yeah. the stabilization of the thyroid dose. So I think there's a big gut piece here that's being overlooked at the expense of these very expanded thyroid assays, which are leading us on this witch hunt for thyroid. And in some cases, maybe in many cases, it's actually not. Right. Okay. I, I do agree with you. I, do, I, I think that for a lot of folks, thyroid, thyroid disease is overdiagnosed, as is probably, you know, mold toxicity and a handful of other things that we, you know, that, that, that some of us have really leaned on. Um, I do agree with you. I, I, and and also my experience with tyrosine has been has has been really well nice as as well for p people who are very sensitive. Um, I, you know, I just think it's kind of funny that you're starting with levothyroxine alone. I I, I don't. <laughs> I use T three and T four, and I do think just as that study pointed out, people respond to it a lot better. They feel better sooner with it. Um, but I absolutely agree with you that. Um, that you have to address the gut or, you know, in my world, casting that the functional medicine net, whatever pops up as, as, as a fundamental piece of the puzzle for that given individual um, we want to look at and address, even if it appears, you know, at a glance, not related, but I, I, I completely agree with you. You absolutely have to look at the gut. Neri, is there a perfect gut person that walks through our door? I mean, I don't know that they would right. come to us otherwise, right? Like why, why, you know, once in a, you know, once in a while you have somebody who's got no, who's got no obvious gut complaints. And even in those cases, often there's some dysregulation. There may be some malabsorption, maldigestion, even if mm -hmm. it's not causing symptoms. And you know, Kara, to your, to your point, one of the reasons why I, typically people come to see me, they're already on thyroid hormone. It seems like one of the typical patient groups we see is someone who's seen their endo, been diagnosed, they're on, let's say, Levo, for example. And then what I've noticed is oftentimes people need less medication once we start yes. doing our, our gut work. So yep. if I convert them over to T4 and T3, at the same time as we enhance their absorption, we risk overdose. And so that's why I like to wait a little while and say, let's, let's leave the thyroid piece constant for a couple months, optimize your gut. And then if you're still not fully improved, then we can discuss the switch to T4 and T3. Got it. Yeah, that makes total sense. You're right. A lot of folks come to us already, already on a protocol. Right. Um, and 
they don't feel good. <laughs> um, let me see. Uh, all right, where do I want to go? Let's, how about, why don't we talk a little bit about adrenal function? I mean, we know that adrenals, um, adrenal function certainly, you know, interacts pretty closely with thyroid and a functioning, you know, and healthy, you know, just a, a full HPAT axis, you know, needs to be reasonably harmonious for all systems to be go and, and for somebody to feel good. So how, what are you thinking about there? Oh gosh, I'm going to sound like the, uh, the ultimate contrarian here. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. It, I, so, I'm looking forward to the comments that we get. <laughs> well, yeah, the, 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 the term adrenal fatigue has been incredibly yep. highly criticized yep. and, and the four point salivary cortisol test has also been extremely heavily criticized. The, the cortisol awakening test is, is probably more representative of dysfunction in, in the stress handling system, which is your HPA access. Um, I think we really need a cultural shift. I'll be seeing it at a conference and people will be saying, oh, my adrenals are going to be so burnt out after this weekend. Better take some extra adrenal support. It's almost this, this you know, mystical unicorn that everyone's chasing down their, their adrenals. And really, I think we're, we're, we're chasing down another empty promise. And I think it's much more simple. The, the adrenals always malfunction, with the exception of Addison's, Cushing, you know, rare, rare diseases they just function secondary to something else, usually a source of stress in the body. And so certainly I think some of the traditional adrenal adaptogenic herbs can be very helpful. Rhodiola, ginseng, for example, but we don't need testing to tell us how to do that. And, and I did the, the four point cortisol testing on people for two years and I never really felt like they were super helpful because I don't need a four point cortisol test to put someone on some adrenal support. And if you look at pretty much every study with, with only one exception that has used adrenal herbal treatments, they have never predicted based upon lab testing who would respond better to what dose. They simply put people on ashwagandha and they noticed the majority of people had better mood, sleep, and energy. And there was no need for this testing to, to steer the, the dosing. And, and so Again, coming back to more of a fundamental approach, if you can get someone on, a, on the right diet for them, on a good lifestyle plan, manage or treat any thyroid autoimmunity, get them on a reasonable dose of thyroid hormone and fix problems in their gut, you can do a tremendous service for those people and you will see their adrenal-like symptoms go away. But having some magical dose based upon the four-point cortisol rhythm, thinking that you're going to truly heal someone with that. Uh, I think it, is, it's a, it was a well-intentioned promise that many of us bought into, but I think as we're learning more about it, that's something that can be assigned to the history books of functional medicine, and, and we can move forward in a bit more of a constructive direction. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that that's fair enough. I, I agree. I agree. I guess, you know, I've been, I've been using um, a panel looking at metabolites, and, and there can be an accumulation um, associated with um, problem thyroid metabolism and actually this lab it's dutch lab actually they're, sure. they're i think they're a great lab they've just released cortisol awakening response and yeah i mean i th i think that there's I, unequivocally it's time for us to move forward in that conversation um and, and, I, and, again, I'm, and i'm open to dutch i'm certainly open because that's newer and they're using a different technology so i'm certainly open i just try not to lose yeah. sight of simple patient symptom changes yeah. and, and rely more heavily on lab work. 
Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. I think it, I think if you back up and do all the foundational interventions, you know. And you can still support the adrenals. I use adrenal support on many patients. I'm, I'm just making the argument that I don't think we need highly prescriptive dosing, especially for using herbal adaptogens for, for the adrenals. Well, and what you're, you know, describing as being adrenal support, you have, you know, the mechanisms are, are, are far you know, arguably are, you know, the adrenal impact is secondary. So the mechanism exactly. of rhodiola, there's, there's right. many and they're, you know, pretty far reaching and, you know, being adaptogen, they're really pretty remarkable. Um, okay. Yeah. Even, sorry, not to chime in something too nerdy here, but even one study showed that ginseng was able to improve the gut microbiota. So these things may be having impacts on many system, systems outside of just the adrenals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine that if we looked in that direction with other botanicals, we would see that routinely because the microbiome is metabolizing the botanical and releasing the secondary products that are, right. you know, oftentimes the ones that are most effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're acting as prebiotics in a way. You know, I, I would right. imagine that we would find that with a lot of botanicals because they are, after all, you know, plants, foods. Um, yeah, that's, it's really interesting. Um, all right. So actually, why don't we talk a little bit about the interesting research study, um, that you did. You, and we're going a little bit sideways here. We are talking about the gut though. Uh, you were looking at, you were looking at biofilm eradication in SIBO. Yes. So we, we took a, a group of patients and essentially either randomly assigned them to receive standard herbal antimicrobials for SIBO or standard herbal antimicrobials plus antibiofilm agents. And we essentially tracked their SIBO, lactulose, hydrogen, methane, breath test scores pre and post. And we were able to show that with the co-administration of the antibiofilm agents, we saw a significantly improved reduction in hydrogen gas SIBO. So that was something that was was pretty interesting. And to my knowledge, it was the first time that that's been documented. And our, our sample was somewhat small. It was 12 treatment and, and nine control, but it was enough for us to show significance. And it, it's definitely something that I think is something that can be utilized. I, I wouldn't recommend it as a frontline therapy, but if someone has only partially responded to a round of herbals, and you think you need a stronger protocol as, as a secondary treatment, I think it's definitely something to consider as, as an adjunct. And we did use different types of antibiofilm agents, and that does weaken our data a little bit, but I, I did that on purpose because I, I did not think that there was going to be some one formula that was super duper strong and, and impactful compared to others. I had the feeling that different cocktails of antibiofilm agents would all have a benefit. And so we used either n acetylcysteine that was prominent. Um, the, the prominent two are either n acetylcysteine or Interphase Plus. Mm-hmm. And in, in some patients, we also use Cemento. And it was really based upon their clinical presentation. Yeah. If someone had SIBO plus H. pylori, we would almost certainly use n acetylcysteine. If someone just had SIBO, we would use Interface. And if someone had SIBO but a history of Lyme or some other funky stuff that made me suspicious of potentially a Lyme co-infection, we would use the Cemento. And they all seem to vector benefit. 
That's pretty interesting. But not, but not on the, the methanogens. E, and even though methanogens have been shown to form biofilms, we did not show a significant reduction in the, the methane archaea or the methane gas levels. Um, all right. Why? So, so do, does Cemento actually have antibiofilm? I, you know, I don't know if it has anti-biofilm, but it has been shown to help with the, there, there's different forms that Lyme can take to, to hide uh, or, or, or to um, kind of evade in infection. And there was one paper published in, in uh, regarding this in, in the Townsend letter. Um, and I want to say they're, they're round bodies and, and they, they can change form to a, yeah. kind of like a cyst-like form. Um, and so that's why we used Cemento just to see if that may be able to be helpful. I don't know of Cemento having traditional antibiofilm characteristics. I know that the, the cocktail in interface has been shown and also in acetylcysteine has been shown. Yeah, right. And why N-acetylcysteine um, specifically when H. pylori is present? What made that, prompted that decision? There, there was one study in particular that showed, I believe it was a, a jump from around 20%, I'm just giving rough numbers here, but 20% clearance rate to about 60% clearance rate of H. pylori when you added to an antibiotic N-acetylcysteine. So antibiotic alone, 20% clearance rate of H. pylori. You add N-acetylcysteine and now you get a 60% clearance rate. And how did you dose the N-acetylcysteine in your study? Just a standard dose. I, I believe, I apologize for not knowing the dose offhand, I, I believe many N-acetylcysteines may use around 500 milligrams. Uh, I'm okay. just approximating there, but what would it typically be one or two capsules of your standard dose of yep. N-acetylcysteine? Yep, that's it, like 1,000 to 1,200 a day. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then, so the cemento, which is cat's claw. Cemento is a type of cat's claw. Did you use cemento specifically, or did you just use a general cat's claw? We use cements, uh, cemento. I believe it's through Wise Woman's Herbal that, that has a, a liquid tincture cemento that we used. Um, and to be truthful, I haven't actually been using cemento a, a ton very often. I, I was doing some experimentation with, with Lyme protocols in my office for a while, and I just was not seeing many patients that fit that description. And, you know, the more patients that tended to come in were patients with predominant IBS and, and SIBO-like presentation and thyroid involvement and not many from Lyme. Um, so it's just yeah. something that, you know, my population of patients doesn't seem to need it. So it's not something that I've used now probably in about a year. Yeah, right. Interphase is from Claire, and that's got a handful of different things in it, including some proteolytic enzymes, I think, and some EDTI, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Okay. Well, that's interesting. You know, and I would say, again, you know, it, it, N-acetylcysteine, what a really basic thing to do. I, I it's for, for me as well, it's a secondary intervention that, or even tertiary sometimes that I'm thinking about, you know, quote biofilm busting um but you know it's great keeping it simple with um with the n-acetylcysteine i know your study was small but can you say fairly conclusively that you saw cat's claw working the 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 cemento i believe it did um so interesting to me <laughs> that's pretty cool i mean it is a potent antimicrobial so you might have just right. like been you know, yeah i mean Exactly. It may not, may not have been an antibiofilm mechanism. It may have yeah. just been because it's an antimicrobial also. Yeah. Good point. What did you use for your SIBO intervention? Did you have a standard intervention? 
Yeah, we typically use a protocol. It's similar to the protocol that Jerry Mullins used mm-hmm. in his study where he compared rifaximin to kind of, you know, two different herbal blends. Yeah. Except for we use different herbal blends. We use GMI Crobex from Designs for Health along with oil of oregano for the first month. And then in the second month, we switched to uh, parabiotic, yep. which is by Biogenesis and Orthoflora yeast support, which I think is by now, which is the practitioner brand of, of protocol. Uh, I'm sorry, by, by protocol, which is the practitioner level uh, version of now. And I think that's important to mention because, and this is something I, I oftentimes write about in the clinical newsletter that we, we publish, which is, you know, people are looking for the magic protocol and I, I really don't think there's a magic protocol out there. And, and I don't say that um, to make practitioners' lives more difficult because I know sometimes when you're starting, you're just looking for a protocol to do. But the problem with relying on protocols and not understanding the process is you're dependent upon protocol. And so you'll just go from guru to guru to guru looking for protocol, 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 not understanding that here's what I'm actually using. And when I understand what I'm using, I can select my own protocol because I just understand that this is a cocktail of antimicrobials and like Mullins used, and we use a similar but different cocktail of antimicrobials and saw you know, a similar effect. So I just think sometimes we get too reliant on a protocol. We don't just think what is the mechanism of this protocol? What are other similar things that we can do? And then more importantly, if this doesn't work, maybe it's not that I need to do another similar protocol, but maybe I need to change my treatment method completely. Mm-hmm. Well, and... I've seen some protocols, some of the protocols that are being released, and they're entirely onerous. And not every SIBO patient needs every, you know, possible SIBO intervention at the get-go. Oh, I couldn't agree can, more. Couldn't you know, agree can, more. As many of our folks, we can turn around really pretty straightforwardly. And I, I also go with a primary, secondary, and tertiary approach. And I do tweak it based on, you know, my history and how they're, how they're presenting. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because we, we just wrote up, uh, I think this one out, or this, this I think will go out in a month or two in our newsletter, but um, we, we write up as part of a case study every month. And one gal came in who had been treated for SIBO and was still having diarrhea and insomnia. And so she kind of got fed up with her other clinician, even though I, I think if you're working with a clinician, you should give that clinician a chance to really see through their process. Because if you, if you clinician hop, it's difficult to get traction because sometimes yes. to, to, to get to what works, you have to work through what does not work. So if you're, if you're confident in your clinician, give them time. Um, but I think she just got to the point where she wanted a different perspective. She came in to see me. And we very easily could have done a lot more with this gal. We could have tested for um, small intestinal fungal overgrowth or, or tried to. We could have tried to assess for hydrogen sulfide SIBO, advanced you know, mass cell activation syndrome or histamine intolerance, what have you. She was having reaction to bile. She was having bile acid diarrhea. And once we figured that out, which we did in just a, about a month and got her off the bile, her diarrhea went away, her insomnia went away, and she was fine. Was she, and so, what, was she taking exogenous bile? Was she using bile she was acids? Taking, yeah, she was taking like a, a digestive enzyme bile acid cocktail. Mm. And it wasn't a very high amount, but it was enough to be causing bile acid diarrhea in Jeez. her case. And, and, the, and so I'm, I'm agreeing with your point in a very long-winded way, which is when you do too much, the, you have a fairly high probability of something that you're doing causing reaction 
And you may think that that reaction is the condition not responding, but all the while it's just a reaction that's confounding your ability to listen to the clinical response, which is why one of the things I've been doing in the clinic lately is staggering the start of my interventions. We start with a dietary change. We give that two weeks before we add in any kind of supplement protocol. Mm -hmm. and, and so this way you get a layering effect that tells you what works, you know, one intervention compared to the other, but also helps you pinpoint any reactions. And that sometimes can be the difference. Yes, thank you. And it, that reminds me, I was going to ask you in your research study, well, A, are you guys publishing it if and when, where? And B, um, did you prescribe a diet as well? Um, good question. I'm <laughs> thinking back on this now because we, <laughs> we, we finished collecting this data about a year ago. Oh, and then, okay. And then some of the backstory is, we, we also were trying to move forward on a, a study looking at the administration of natural prokinetic agents and their ability to prolong time in, in SIBO remission. And we went through, you know, this was going to be a, a full-on double-blinded placebo-controlled trial that needed IRB approval. And, and we jumped through all the hoops and filled out all the paperwork and mm -hmm. went through all the rigors of that. And we were going to be using Iberogast as the compound. Oh, and, right. I remember you were telling me about yeah. this. And then Iberogast got taken off the U.S. market. And that right. was just like a punch in the stomach after all of that work. And so now we're trying to, to do this with a different compound, but we've been really struggling with getting, ironically, the hardest thing is getting placebos. Everything else is ready to go, but no company wants to stop their machinery just to make some placebos for us. So that's actually been the most challenging aspect. Um, so mm -hmm. between that and, and finishing up my book, we, we haven't actually finished drawing up the study and submitting it for publication. Um, my plan is early 2018 is to get that published. I'm not sure where it will be published, but we are, we are definitely going to submit that for publication. Um, it's just a few of these other things really kind of ate up a lot of my bandwidth in the meantime. Yeah, right. I got it. Listen, we're going to wrap up. Um, it's just been a great time talking to you, but you were talking about all this SIBO research you're doing and you're paying attention to those patients really pretty carefully. And I was wondering like, what um, are you, are, are these folks just SIBO or what incidents of thyroid disease do you see? Like what percentage of your SIBO patients have accompanying thyroid disease? I'm just kind of mm, curious. That's a great question. And I'd have to give a, a rough estimation there. I haven't actually ever crunched that number, mm. but I would say maybe 30%. You should totally data mine that number because you're talking about gut, you know, gut thyroid connection a lot these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. challenge you to data mine it. It wouldn't be too <laughs> difficult. <laughs> oh, you're right. And, and, there, and there's a lot of interplay there. And, and so that would be... Of course, be... I could do it too, but... <laughs> so one of the things I want to do soon is, is kind of update the software that we're using at our office so that doing some of this would just be a simple, yeah. you know, few keystrokes. I hear um, you. But it's, it's time to get that set up too. So you know, with, with oh, enough time, we could really do anything. I know. Um, but, but to your other question, no, it's not just SIBO. I'm so glad you asked that question because you know, I'm not meaning to be critical against overly expanded thyroid assays or adrenal assays. But the reason why is because these things sometimes prevent us from thinking and just doing the, the art of medicine, which is looking at a patient, 
listening to what's wrong with them and then treating what you think is wrong with them rather than always needing some piece of paper to tell you yeah. what is wrong with them. Right. And, and so the same thing I think applies to SIBO where there's, there's definitely a SIBO centric way of treating patients that's emerging. And I really try not to get pulled into that. Even, even though I publish or collecting and, and attempting to publish research in SIBO, sometimes it's not SIBO and, and something that, that pops up sometimes that's I think important for clinicians to be aware of is histamine intolerance. And mm-hmm. this is something yep. where people will be sometimes eating foods that they think are healthy, especially probiotic rich foods, like fermented foods. And if they have a degree of histamine intolerance along with that, that can actually thwart their response. And they think that they have SIBO because some of the signs of histamine intolerance are bloating, diarrhea, loose stools, abdominal pain, fatigue, brain fog. Um, those can look very much like SIBO. And sometimes the solution is not more SIBO testing, but it's actually making some simple modifications to one's diet. And there have been a number of cases where we've, we've sniffed that out. And we could have done a, Oops. a lot more testing and treatment, not been overly excited about testing, and just made some simple dietary changes. So it's definitely something for, for people to be aware of. And, and treating histamine intolerance, I think frontline, just try a low histamine diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes easy. that's all you really need to do. Initially. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really easy um, diagnostic, you know, a, a diagnostic di- diet and you can do, and it's not a, you know, you don't have to do it for a month either. It's not like a typical exactly. elimination. You can, you can bang it out. And if somebody's truly histamine intolerant, they're going to know post taste. Yeah, I would say a couple of days they, yep, they would exactly. notice, yeah. Yep, yep. Another thing that we do here at the clinic is we'll start with um, a couple of days of an elimination if we need to and a real challenge, ex- not elimination, excuse me, an elemental. And then we'll, and then we'll start reintroducing foods after just, a, just mm-hmm. a day or two of the elemental, which, which in, you know, most patients, but not all, and that's telling in and of itself, but in most patients, they'll have really complete relief and they'll be so grateful, even though an elemental diet really kind of sucks. But then we'll start layering in safe foods. And from there, we can, you know, get an idea of what their diet exactly. is. Exactly. And, and there's a lot that can be done. I mean, a low FODMAP diet in one study showed an, an eightfold reduction in histamine levels. Yes. Um, and, you know, I know one of the things you wanted to talk about was low FODMAP, and I just want to quickly chime this in because I think this is really important for clinicians. Low FODMAP gets criticized as being bad for the microbiota, and I think that's a, a very erroneous assumption mm. because there have been studies that have shown, for example, a decrease of histamine on low FODMAP, like we just mentioned, an eight-fold decrease. So there is decreased immune activation with a low FODMAP diet. One study showed a reduction of leaky gut and low FODMAP. And yes. a few studies have shown a normalization of enteroendocrine cells, meaning the endocrine cells in your intestines, most namely a normalization of the cells that secrete serotonin, which is very important for pain signaling and for motility. And so on a low FODMAP diet, IBS subjects had the density of their serotonin cells in their gut look more like that of healthy controls. That's so, so interesting. we get this microbiota-centric way of thinking, blinding us to the fact that there is a lot of other healthy things happening in the gut on a low FODMAP diet. So if, if you know, you're, you're using it with patients and it's working well, don't be pushed off of it. Use it for a month or maybe two months and then try to reintroduce, yes, to the broadest diet possible. But if people have limited FODMAP tolerance, 
in the longer term, don't be afraid because there are other healthy changes that are occurring in the gut that should be Absolutely. Natural. Yeah. And, and, and what is the idea of fasting the microbiome anyway? I mean, anything that you consume is going to be a prebiotic, you know, for some of the critters down there. I mean, right. you yeah. know, it's only fasting would fast the microbiota. Again, it's, you know, completely. But I know, I know there's been a lot of talk around that. I think when Pimentel posited the idea that um, outcomes would be improved if you, you know, treat through their their standard diet um, rather than using the FODMAP. And I definitely, I do think that there's a place for the FODMAP. And, and again, when you do all of the underlying work that you're talking about, we can rebuild them. Um, oftentimes, you know, after you do a careful reintroduction, we find that it's only, you know, one of the, or two foods that really seem to be the problem players. Right. But when exactly. people are really feeling lousy, all of them, you know, in the beginning, maybe all of them, but then there's maybe two, one or two lasting. And there is a small subset that seem to be really sensitive. And, and I think the cause of this, this really sensitive patient population can be multifactorial. But I, I did have Lawrence Afrin on the podcast, and, and he's a mast cell activation syndrome researcher mm-hmm. and clinician. And he, I thought, gave some phenomenal uh, clinical pearls and, and, and tidbits. So that, that'll go out probably sometime in the next three to four weeks, but really, really impressed with the conversation with him and um, just some simple over-the-counter interventions that can really help sort out mast cell activation syndrome. I use the, the term syndrome and not disorder because one of the things I took away from the interview with him was that disorder is more so reserved for diseases that are much more severe, much more rare, and it's actually more appropriate to say mast cell activation syndrome. That's great. I, I'll look forward to um, listening to that podcast. All right. Well, listen, we could keep, we could go on and on and <laughs> on and on. <laughs> Just jump and jump and keep talking. We'll have to circle back and do another podcast together at some point. Just let me know when you, when you feel like it. Um, so again, uh, Michael, Dr. Ruscio, thank you so much for joining me and folks we will get as many tidbits and pearls outlined in the show notes as possible. And of course you'll see um, access to his link to his site and um, in other details. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.